Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we give coaches and consultants practical ideas for taking you to the next level in your business and in your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who've walked in your shoes and offer real-world experience that you can apply to your own journey. Hi, welcome to another episode of Strong for Performance, a wonderful podcast for coaches and consultants. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and with me today is a very special guest, someone I admire and enjoy so much, Frank Wagner. Welcome, Frank. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Meredith. Well, Frank is special for many reasons. For one thing, he's just a heck of a nice guy, uh, but also his work is so relevant to the audience of this podcast. Uh, Frank has had his own consulting and coaching practice now for more than 30 years, right, Frank, 1986? Well, that, yeah, the, the current business model. Yeah, before that, though, I was a member of other businesses in the field. Oh, yes. I didn't mean you started your career. No, yeah, no, but yeah, been, had a business partner since 1986. Yes. And then you created the Marshall Goldsmith Stakeholder-Centered Coaching Approach and Program, and you run the certification for that, right? That's correct. Yeah, because Frank and Marshall go back to graduate school, and we won't say how many decades ago that was. Let's just say they've known each other, been friends, and been colleagues for a long time. And Frank is just remarkable in so many ways as a coach, as a relationship builder. And that's really what I want to focus on in our conversation today, Frank, is the way you, it's almost like magic, how you develop these strong relationships with lots of people. Well, thank you for that. And it's, you know, it's, it's an important thing to be aware of, be good at. And because, you know, all of this is, you know, we're going to be successful based upon our relationships. So I think it's a very good topic for us to talk about. Well, and I think it's interesting from two perspectives, because one, you're really good at building these relationships so that you don't do really any outside business development at all anymore. You've got clients coming to you based on what you've done for others in the past, but also the relationship building from the perspective of what you're teaching leaders Uh you work with them. So we can look at it from both angles, because the folks that are listening to this program have that same situation where they are themselves for their own business needing to develop strong relationships, but also they are working with leaders to help them in some of the same areas you are. Let's think for a minute and back up with the leaders that you work with. What are some of the things that you see them struggling with when it comes to developing strong relationships? I think you know the you know this is the big elephant in the room. It's time. You know they they you know they get caught up in everything that they need to do to be successful, and don't develop enough sort of bandwidth to spend the time to build relationships with people. And because the relationship building isn't specific work, and. It, you know, this goes back to, see, I'm born an American, and I don't know, maybe I was born American, but I wasn't an American because I've always kind of looked at things this way, 
more like the rest of the world looks at things. And, you know, typically in the U.S., when you get down to business, it's all kind of the, the art of the deal. And, the, and it's all about, you know, if I'm really logical in my deal making, I'll get business and I'll get work. So you know, you're talking about work. Well, in most of the world, people don't want to work with you until they have a relationship with you. Mm. They, they got to know you, they got to like you, and they got to trust you. So it's funny how you go into other parts of the, the world. I mean, my last trip uh, a couple of months ago was to Moscow in Russia is you know, they, they want to kind of socialize and get to know you before you get down to the business stuff. And, and this, I mean, really it's, most cultures are wired that way. And when they kind of say the Americans aren't wired that way, I mean, they get a bad press, you know, overseas because of that, they jump too quickly into like deal making and business issues and those kinds of things before they really have cemented a relationship with somebody. And although, you know, it's, it's, that's a, again, a stereotype. There are plenty of U.S. business people who do a fabulous job of this. So, you know, I'm not um, thinking that, say, gee, Americans are bad at this. It's that we're generally not as good as many other cultures as a generality. So how do you help leaders that you're working with to start paying more attention to the relationship building aspect? Well, again, there's two things, you know, sometimes also people don't spend a lot of time on it because they don't know how to do it. So, I mean, people shy away from things they don't have the confidence to do a good job at. They'll focus on the things they're good at. Mm. So, I mean, the first thing is to kind of get a framework for, okay, what does this relationship building mean if I'm going to go out and building relationships? And then after that, it's actually carving out the time to do it, spending the time. You know, you mentioned, you know, my good friend, and I'm so lucky that he, I do have a relationship with him, and that's Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall is amazing at relationship building. And in fact, a lot of his success as a coach, as he became like uber successful, was he would coach somebody and, and when they were done coaching, he would then start inviting them to these dinners. And he, would, he basically would put together a dinner, typically at the Four Seasons Hotel in Manhattan in New York City, and they would invite all these prior clients of his. And, and, and they would just kind of get to know each other. Mm. And, 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 and by the way, then, for instance, I remember, you know, later on in Marshall's life, him telling the story about some guy who calls up Marshall and says, look, I'm, I'm trying to decide between you and this other person um, as a coach. And Marshall says, well, to be honest with you, that other guy's a better coach than me. You know, you should hire him. He says, but just, I just want to say one thing before you make your decision. And that is, um, if I coach you, you'll start getting invited to these dinners. And in these dinners, you will meet Alan Mulally, you know, CEO of Ford Motor Company. You'll meet Dr. Jim Kim, president of the World Bank. You know, and you know, so it's your choice. Guess who the person hired as a coach? <laughs> Marshall. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people, there, there's a thing in psychology that the social psychologists were the first people that really kind of cracked the code on power. You know, power is your influence potential. And Raven and French did this great, sort of came up with this great list of bases of power. Now, there are other, you know, lists too, but, but this is really a classic one. And, and one of the power bases between what's considered personal power and positional power is something called connection power, which is really who you have relationships with. Mm -hmm. and, and so some people are very powerful because of their connections. 
So, but see, but you mean, but then, okay, how do I do it? That's the, to me the big issue. I think that's what we should probably talk about here is, you know, how do you sure. build relationships? And so that is a great uh, intro to the next question I wanted to ask you. Oh, good. It's really good because I know you're so skilled at this yourself. You just gave Marshall as a good example, but. He's a better example than me, I'll tell you that. Well, but let's focus on you from your own personal experience. How sure. do you build a good relationship? What are some of the elements? Well, again, first of all, just as a kind of a backdrop, the, the one thing too is you got to make choices on who you're going to build relationships with. And I'll start off with an example. I, I, I used to teach this class on ethics at a Jesuit university. Marshall and I got our start as academics before we became leadership development cons consultants and did training and before we became coaches. And I had to, I had to study ethics and come up with a good class. And my favorite part of this class eventually, in fact, when I left teaching and joined Marshall as a business partner, the dean of our business school asked me if he could do this exercise. I thought, you're asking my permission to use the exercise? I'm leaving. You can do whichever you want to do. It was an ethics on lobbying. And the students had to lobby with me for a grade. And, and, uh, and this grade was, I had to make it meaningful. So one third of their final grade in my class was based on this lobbying exercise. And, and only a third of the groups could get A's. Only a third could get B's. So a third of the class was going to get a C or lower grade. And this is also in the era where there was great inflation, where everyone thought they deserved the minimum of B in terms of their grade. And, and I would assign them randomly to a team. It was a team exercise. Students went nuts. They'd come up and ask me, what do I do? I said, lobby with me for your A. I'd give no advice, but we had a time frame. It was actually over about a, a six-week period they had to do this thing. Hmm. Well, I just want to give you the, the group that got the highest score I ever gave in terms of a grade was a student group, and these were now 20, 20-year-olds. 20 they understood all we're talking about relationship building. What they did is I get an engraved invitation to go out for a dinner cruise, and, and included was my wife. And so we go down to Marina Del Rey. This is in, in Los Angeles area. We get on this boat that's owned by the father of one of these students. We got these six students that are just doting over us. We got white tablecloths. We have this fabulous dinner. They play our music from the 60s. And, and we come home, you know, you know, the sunset over the Pacific Ocean, putter in under the darkness and see the lights of the marina. Okay, well, now I'm grading my, at the end of this assignment, I am grading the students. My wife comes into my home office, looks over my shoulder and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm grading papers. She looks down through the list. She sees the, the six names of the students and the people she remembers. She says, what grade are they getting? What do you think grade they got? A plus. Uh, what's the moral of the story? Almost no students ever did this in their groups, including my wife in their lobbying. See, sometimes the people you want to build relations are not your eventual target. It's the people that, that are um, very connected to the people you ultimately want to influence in the situation. So, you know, the first order of business is, is don't also don't wait till you really need a relationship to build it. Start day one when you do this. Yes. That's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, so, so now we get into, okay, well, what, do you, what are the kind of the key elements of relationship building? Well, think about it from the standpoint of the person you're trying to build your relationship with. There's really two things that I think are critical. At least it's the things I focus on. 
And the two things are becoming credible in their eyes. So you got to establish your credibility. And the second thing is being helpful to them. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you don't determine whether you're credible or not. They do. You don't determine whether you're helpful to them. They do in this situation. So, you know, let's talk about credibility first. Okay. What a lot of people do wrong. And by the way, this ties into selling. Um, my business partner, Chris Coffey, who's a consummate salesman, I am not. I'm a relationship builder. He, Chris can sell. And, and when we were business partners, he's the guy that I went to business with in 1986. We're still business partners today in 2019. I don't know, this goes back quite a ways. He decided to take a course in strategic selling. Now he takes this course, but, and the people that taught strategic selling, when they were done with the course, asked him, would you teach the course? <laughs> I mean, I mean so just, just kind of tell you how good he is, right? Uh-huh. He actually did teach the course just so he could learn it more. And, and this was a course um, that, that had a foundation on a basic principle, which is kind of counterintuitive, at least in terms of how people behave. And the counterintuitive nature of this is, and this was a course in how to sell to senior executives. And now here's the choice. The question is asked, why will a senior executive buy from you? And here's the two choices. They buy from you because of what they know about you or they buy from you based on what they think you know about them. Now, as I state this, most people get the right answer, yet it's not what they do. They do the wrong answer. They think they got to sell their product, their service, explain explain stakeholder centered coaching, you know, explain whatever I'm teaching, you're going to teach people situational leadership. So it's all about me explaining to you what you need. No, senior executives buy based on what they think you know about them. So the question is, is, your credibility is based upon how much do they feel you have listened and learned from them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and I remember there were years ago when I used to teach this class, I had a, a um, I always forget how to phrase this. She was an, a, um, uh, the, she was the mother of my son-in-law and she lived in a place in a valley, a horse country east of Santa Barbara in California. Um, and, and it was horse country. And I was over there for dinner when our first grandson um, had just been born, and he is now 26 years old. So this is, I can tell you, this is 26 years ago at Christmas time. Um, we're at this dinner, and it's just family, except for there's one invited guest. I don't know who this guy, who's, who's invited guest is, but it was actually a guy who was courting this woman. She was now divorced. The guy walks in the door. As soon as he walked in, I actually recognized him. He was an actor. His name was John Forsythe. And, and uh, he was the, the voice of Charlie's Angels, the original Charlie's Angels. Mm-hmm. And he actually ends up sitting down next to me for dinner. So I'm doing my small talk with, with him. And, and he's really into horses. And, and when, he, when he asked what I did, and I described it briefly, he says, well, do you know who Monty Roberts is? I said, no. He says, well, Monty Roberts is kind of famous in the, in, in the, in the valley here in San Ynez. And But he's also a person who people either think he's a saint or a god, or he's a devil, and he's a villain. And, and, and he says, he wrote a book called The Man Who Listens to Horses. And, and the reason why we also got into this is I asked John Forsythe, you know, well, you're an actor, you're successful in Hollywood, what's your, what's your favorite work? He goes, well, most of my work was pretty bad. He says, but I have, as you probably know, I have a good voice, and my, my favorite work I ever did were documentaries. And he did a documentary on Monty Roberts. 
Well, Monty Roberts' book was called The Man Who Listens to Horses. Now, classically in the world, this isn't just in the Wild West, how you tamed a horse was to break its spirit. And Monty Roberts had a different way of training wild horses called joining up. And see, a lot of people don't really realize it's almost like they're, like they're breaking down a client or a prospect. They're almost like the classic horse breeders as opposed to joining up with them. Oh, so I love like, that. Let's you know, talk about yeah, been, that distinction between those two. Yeah. What does so one look like versus the other? Yeah, and, but see, it, the subtlety, there's a dramatic shift in how you act. And then, and then what they experience with you. So your job is to learn, like learn their lingo, learn their situations, learn all this. Like I'm, I'm right now, um, in terms of, you know, just my probably the most current example of me getting work from relationship building is I'm working for one of the major entertainment companies in the United States. And I'm coaching 10 senior, senior executives. Most of them have titles like president, CEO, chairman of a, of a line of business in this entertainment company. I didn't sell this work. I was, I was brought in to do this work. Yet, even the, though I'm being brought in by another consultant who's a best-selling author and, and you know, I developed a relationship with him and when this came up, he thought about me and asked me if I'd be willing to do this and I said yes. Well, this organization, you know, so I had to learn a lot about the entertainment industry fast. So I took my time, I, you know, I, I read everything up about this, this organization and they are right now in the throes of a potential merger. And guess what? I did my due diligence. So when I'm talking to people and they kind of say, well, you know, you don't understand our situation, Frank. There's so much uncertainty here. And I say, well, then I, I can throw out like a couple of words and they go, oh, oh you get it. Right. So, you know, so, but that, that's doing your homework. Mm -hmm. in terms of, so how do you get credible in the eyes of others? One is demonstrating that you, you know the world they live in. And, and, and they know you didn't just, you know, just know this from instinct. You actually did some due diligence, some work to earn the right to be talking to them. Yes. The second thing is, and this is what I really like, is see what a lot of people do is they try to have to come across, they think their credibility is based on expertise. So I got to come across like I know everything. Mm. Yeah, come across as a know-it-all. And, oh, I can do that, or I know about this, or I know that. Um, and I'll go to, to another client I had many years ago. It actually was my, actually the only other client I've ever had in the entertainment industry. It was a studio called Rhythm and Hughes Studio. It was the third largest special effects studio in Hollywood. And again, I had some young guys that had gone through a training I did at UCLA. And, and they wanted me to come in and do internal work in the company. So they, they spearheaded me in the, into the door. I go in to meet the founder, president, CEO of this special effects studio. And as I walk in, and this is in the 1980s, I walk in and there's a whole stack of books behind this guy's credential. So I take a quick gander. It's called The Dynamics of Software Development. Now, this is all before what we have now in the way they make movies where everything is digital, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's created almost. You almost don't even need live sets anymore to do anything. And, but this was back in the day where I actually walked into this office and saw the room where they had little models, like they're having if, like a, a big ship that's right. sitting, it was actually a, a physical model of a ship, right? But, but when I walked in, I saw that, I said, well, you know, again, I guess this world is going digital, isn't it, to the guy? 
And he looks up at me, and this is like a mousy looking kind of nerd. He looks up at me and he goes, uh, oh, are you the leadership guy? I said, yes. And I said, and I said, well, you know, Dynamics of Software Development. He says, well, you probably know the book. I'm going, no, 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 you misunderstand me. I know leadership. I know nothing about computers and all this stuff. He goes, no, no, this is a leadership book. I give it to everyone in my organization who shows any sign of leadership. I said, interesting, could I get a copy? So he hands me a copy. It was written by a guy named Jim McCarthy based on his experiences at Microsoft. Now, Microsoft has also been a client of mine over time. Um, most people, well, have had some experience with Microsoft as a user. And, um, and I'll go back to the days when you know, their, their operating system was a bit buggy. <laughs> That's and, being kind. And, and, uh, and by the way, most people would say, don't buy first release of anything Microsoft publishes. Let them get the bugs out of it. And Jim McCarthy was actually considered to be a person who sold his soul to the devil because he did something that is not humanly possible. He um, he's developed a product called Visual C++. He was given a budget. He was given a time frame. Um, he, he did it with less than the money assigned to him for his budget. He came in under budget. He came in ahead of schedule. And it was probably the only product in the history of Microsoft up to that point in time that came out literally perfect. For, and people said, that's impossible. Because remember, Microsoft, nothing came out on time. They had more money than God, so everyone didn't really worry about it. It was just standard practice. And here's McCarthy doing something that said people said it was impossible. So he writes a book called Dynamics of Software Development. Well, I'm going to just tell you one story out of that book, which I use around establishing credibility. It was a phrase I've never heard before. Lucid ignorance. And then, see, my layman's term is be willing to admit what you don't know. It doesn't hurt your credibility. It builds your credibility. I'll go back to Marshall Goldsmith. I've seen Marshall countless times in front of a group. He gets asked a question. He doesn't know the answer. He says, I don't know the answer to that question. Right? He doesn't try to pretend like he knows the answer. Well, see, in software development, the big problem McCarthy points out in the book, it's all about leadership and influence and working together and collaborating. It's that most people don't understand ahead of time what they don't know about this software project. So mm -hmm. to be on his team, you had to demonstrate lucid ignorance. He said he prized a person on his team more who didn't know something and admitted they didn't know it as opposed to somebody who knows something. And, and by the way, by hiring people like that, they came in under budget, had a schedule, a, basically a perfect product on that thing. So, you know, the, the whole idea is what is your self-confidence to admit you don't know something? And actually almost look for an opportunity to say, I don't know something in your relationship building with people. You lose credibility, you gain credibility. See, a lot of this stuff, if you stop and think about it, it logically makes sense, but intuitively we do the opposite mm -hmm. in the way we operate. I think that's such a good point because when we're in a situation where we're we're meeting with a potential client and they may be considering other people to work with. You feel like you're under the microscope being evaluated. You've got to prove yourself. And we get the, as you're saying, the mistaken assumption that we have to show we really are the expert by telling, telling, telling and trying to impress. And instead the impression happens when you demonstrate curiosity, mm -hmm. ask questions, 
and readily admit when you don't know something, because then as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that gives you an opportunity to learn and exactly. them tell you things that allow them to shine. So instead of you shining, they get to shine and people feel better when they feel that they've been heard and understood. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're really exactly. establishing exactly. credibility? Yeah. And in fact, you know, Meredith, you know, I have, I hadn't thought about bringing this up yet. What uh, I remember I said, Microsoft has been a client of mine. One goes back over a decade. I coached the chief technology officer at Microsoft. He had a chief of staff. This guy was scary. I swear to God, in three years of working there, I never saw the guy in anything but black jeans and a black t-shirt with a crew cut hair. He was a, from South Africa and he was an equivalent of their, um, you know, um, the, the SEAL team. I mean, this guy was chiseled, military, um, never saw the guy smile. One day I was talking to my client by their door and I said something and, and I just, quarter of my eye, I saw this guy who was walking towards us. He turns around like in a military precision, walks back, comes back and hands me a book. And, and, it, and it was called something like the 26 Rules of Power. I can't remember the exact, but it's a big orange book. And it was a book of stories real life stories and some of them were kind of negative about the well, I consider the downside of power but some were very positive and one of the stories was about Machiavelli in you know Renaissance Italy and and uh, you know Machiavelli was an artist so he was reliant on benefactors to pay and one of his benefactors was the mayor of Soleri was the guy's name and one day, Michelangelo is working on some big statue, carving out, you know, chisel, 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 marble, creating this. Maybe it was David, I don't know, but it was up on a higher platform. He was up there, you know, doing this thing. So Larry comes in and says, um, he gives a critique of Machiavelli. Now, this guy's a mayor. What does he know about art? And he goes, the nose, it's too big on this on his face. So what does Machiavelli do? He doesn't say, shut up, I'm the expert, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm gonna be famous, you're not, people's never gonna know your name, they're all gonna know my name. No, he doesn't do any of that. What he does, he goes, oh, thank you. And he ends up picking up some, very subtly picks up some dust, of, of, and, he, and he's got this chisel, and he hits the hammer on the chisel, and as he hits the hammer, this, he lets go of it, so it looks like he's, it looks like he's carving some of this stuff off of the node. <laughs> And, and then, he, then he stops after, but he says, how does that look? And so he goes, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> and the whole point is, is don't try to prove the other person wrong and you right when you do things. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's that, that whole mindset is help other people shine mm -hmm. in, in what you're doing. And, and remember, this is all around what I talk about. The key element is thinking about having a plan for establishing your credibility. The second key part, the other hand in terms of relation building is, is helping others. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not telling anything any people don't know. But again, if you look at the universal nature of this, in, in Chinese, there's a term called Ren Qing. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, although I won't claim to be. Um, it's if you actually went to right now, if you picked up your phone and you went to like Google Translate and you and you and you put in that word in Chinese and asked for the English translation, it would come out as human feelings. But that doesn't really capture the essence of it. It's basically the understanding that there is a human dimension to all human interaction. 
And, and it really ties into the concept, the universal concept of reciprocity. Mm. In other words, you help me, I'll help you. And it, it really, and it plays out, there's no culture where reciprocity is not alive and well. Yet in the Asian cultures, it's really up there. Because you do something in China of benefit to another person, it, basically it's, it's like a debt gets created. The other person owes a debt to you. It'll never be written down. Yet it's a matter of guilt and or saving face if you don't repay. And they may go down generations within families before it's repaid. But I mean, and so I say, they're the lunatic fringe of this stuff, but it still plays out in the United States. It still plays out in Western Europe. It still plays out in South America. This whole concept of, of helping each other. So, you know, what you want to be is, and by the way, countless people ask me, because I've helped them, Frank, what can I do to help you? And I always appreciate them saying that. Rarely do I have something to give them to help me. Right now, but see, now talk about when you're building a new relationship. This is not only part of your due diligence of understanding their situation, their world, their challenges, their whatnot. It's where can they use some help that you can actually provide some help to them. And then in, in the course of the conversation, um, suggesting, hey, if you really need some help there, here, I think I can do something for you. And by the way, sometimes your help is simply just connecting them to another person. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's an important distinction to make because there are so many ways that you can help someone and be of service to them without feeling like it's got to be tied to the services or products that you offer. Mm -hmm. There's just a human-to-human -human connection where if you're paying attention, you'll hear them express a concern or an interest or something where you could say, oh, I know someone who can do that, or I know a book or some resource that can be helpful to you. And I think a really good um, indicator of how helpful you've been is exactly the response you've gotten from some of the people you've helped. What can I do for you? Mm -hmm. I have that often happen in some of the calls that I have where I've listened, I've asked questions, I've come up with some ideas or some resources that they could use that have nothing to do with our products, but something mm -hmm. that I think would help them. And you're right. It's a universal desire to reciprocate whether mm -hmm. they do it or not is not usually whether they can reciprocate doesn't matter. It's the goodwill that you're putting out there exactly, in yeah. the sense of, you know, that phrase servant leader is kind of overused, but that's really what you're, you're getting at there is how can I be of service to you? Yeah. And so you, you're, hit, you're completely hitting the point, Meredith, is the, um, see, some people that don't do it as well. I mean, they, they look like they're practicing what we're talking about here, yet they are strictly tying their help to reciprocity. If I do this, you've got to return the favor. Um, it's much more a function of, I'm just doing this from the genuine spirit of helpfulness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, without an expectation of something in return. And, you know, but again, but, see, but then that, that goodwill does play out and is very likely to come back. And it may not come back immediately. It may be coming back years later. Right. In, in terms of what you're doing. And, and again, so 
there was one of my people that I read about who I never met the guy. In fact, I may have been dead even when I was reading his material. It was a guy named Hans Selye. Mm-hmm. He really helped guide my sort of personal philosophy. And Hans Selye um, is not well known. He, although we all benefit from his work, uh, he was the one in the medical field who really cracked the code on stress. I mean, today everyone takes it for granted. They must have known this since you know ancient times about stress and how it can be, 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 be debilitating to people, and and it's a negative thing, and, and it can cause all kinds of problems if you're under too much stress. Well, when he was first proposing this, um, the, especially the American medical community, basically ridiculed him for ten years as a heretic, and because he didn't, his model was such that which is by the way accepted today, is if you're under stress that's going to affect you physically, um, it doesn't do it the same way with every person. See, so it's not so science-oriented like, well, A equals B, and that's why the American medical community was so down on him. Because for some people, they'll, it will attack their, their, um, their cardiovascular system, so they'll have a heart attack. You know, other people will cause their immune system, they'll get cancer under the stress. Mm-hmm. There's no definite specific link to this thing. Well, Selyer, though, going back, though, he was born in, in Eastern Europe, and he escaped Eastern Europe under a rail car with his family, um, and they migrated to Canada. And, and that's where he did then all of his work, and then he started writing, and he, you know, he's considered the father of stress. He, some people refer to him as, as the Einstein of medicine. Uh, so, I mean, the guy did really well, but, but his philosophy in life he got from his father. His father was the local doctor in the, in the town he grew up in. And his father would, would basically give medical treatment to those who could pay. And he'd give medical treatment to those who couldn't pay. Mm. And he didn't expect payment. But, but this is what Hans said. It's funny. Every morning if I opened the front door, there was like a bottle of milk there or some carton of eggs there. These were the people that couldn't pay him, right? So his philosophy was... Um, looking out for your, oh, let me give you the title first. Um, altruistic egoism. Altruistic egoism. That means being altruistic and being egotistical at the same time. They're almost like opposites. So his, his description of it was looking out for yourself by being necessary to others, thus earning their goodwill. Mm. I, I change it ever so slightly for mine. You know, I change it from looking out for yourself by being useful to others. I didn't say necessary, just being useful to others and thus earning their goodwill. And I think that's a great model if you take sort of the gestalt of what it means in terms of relationship building. That's a wonderful way to summarize it as we kind of wrap up here because you've shared so many really good nuggets. And I think one of the key things I'd love the listeners to leave with and and think about is how am I positioning myself so I'm credible? What are the things that I'm doing that increase the perception of credibility on the part of the person I'm talking to, not my own mm-hmm. uh, trying to establish my credibility? And then this whole thing of being helpful, useful, of service to others without looking for an immediate payback. Right. That you just trust the process of giving is going to 
all work out for everybody because right. people sense that. I think that's an important takeaway also in wrapping up is people sense when you're being genuine and when you're implementing a technique, trying to be a particular way in the moment, but it doesn't resonate right with them. And what you're talking about is really a way of being mm -hmm. that is being fully present with them and being really focused on them so they sense that you care. I mean, to me, it's all about them, the credibility you have with them and their perception of your service to them is all about them feeling like whether you care or not. Yeah. And see, you, you, and again, see, most of us aren't, aren't gifted enough to fake it well. So, you know, most people can see, yet there are those that can, but even those that can, it's a waste of their time because, you know, they came across as genuine. They came across as caring. They can't, they, they will not pull that off forever. Mm -hmm. If realizes what they're really dealing with in the other person, relationship's done. And yeah. then you, you know, all that investment, that relationship, you know, you're never going to have it in the future with that person. So, you know, Andy, it'll affect your reputation as they talk about you to others. So, you know, the really the only way to do it is, as you said, is really kind of the state of being about how you approach things. And it's like, what are your principles and how, how are you operating around those principles? Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, I've never been like my wife. You can talk to anyone in my family. Frank Wagner, not a salesman. Uh, not what? Not a salesman. Oh. Right? Like I you can't sell anything. You never try something. Never proactively goes out and sells anything. Yet I've had a good life because I've got a very strong network of relationships. Mm -hmm. Worked for me. Well, and it goes to show there's different ways of selling in terms of, I should say, different ways of getting business. Sure. And when you deliver the way you consistently deliver, you build up a fan base of people that are delighted to refer you, introduce you, contract with you to serve because they trust you. They trust that you're going to deliver what you say you can do. And so you've built up that reputation. So I guess that's another question to leave people with is how can you build up your reputation so other people want to introduce you to other clients, other opportunities because of the value you delivered for them? That's, that's the real question in terms of building business. Well, again, the, the, well, first of all, you know, you, you used the term fan base. Well, let's see, I'm in your fan base, Meredith. <laughs> the, uh, you know, but to answer the question, I'll, I'll tie to another person that was very instrumental when Chris Coffey and I went into business back in 86. He had a kind of a somehow distant relative in his family, a guy named Frank Rossani, who, when he gave me the name, I didn't know who Frank Rossani was. He was on his deathbed. Now, if you Wikipedia him, he was a guy, he was on the cover of Fortune magazine. He was called the corporate doctor. He, ba he basically invented leverage buyouts. Mm. He was a titan of, of consultants and industry. He would make, he, he, people would have loved to work for him because if you work for him, he, he, he made, you'd always be a millionaire often after the first deal you were involved in. And um, Frank Rossani had a set of rules and we adopted those rules for our little company. Uh, his first rule, and this ties actually ties back into, you know, our relationship building and what I said about picking who you built relationships with. He said, only do business with people at, at your level of integrity. 
The, the second thing is um, only accept work you're fully qualified to perform. So that ties into your reputation. Mm-hmm. You may need the work. And so you take work that you're partially qualified to perform. And guess what? You do okay. But does that make give you a sterling reputation? No. Now, did, it, did it pay your mortgage for a period of time? Yes. So with those, but see, again, these are easy principles to understand, not necessarily easy to implement. Right. So, so you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the so, and then, and then the a key other part of what he was, of Christiani's rules was, I love it. Don't be a pig. It, and, and what he means by that is don't be greedy. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you come across as greedy, that actually becomes part of your reputation. And so, yeah, the, you know, so if you can implement Grisani's rules, right? Now, in fact, I, I think I've, I've lost this. Only, only do this with people of integrity. Only accept work you're fully qualified to. Oh, know the rules of the business you're dealing with. And then don't be a pig. Hmm. If you get, you know, smart people and you just say, I can use that. So, I mean, Frank Wagner is sort of like a, 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 a mashing together of principles of Hans Selye, um, Frank Rossani, Marshall Goldsmith, you know, all the good people I've been around. Well, Frank, you just are a synthesizer of information because you have all these wonderful decades of experiences and, and it's why I always enjoy our conversations because you integrate, you know, uh, diverse pieces of information and different experiences and bring them together in a very cohesive way that to me has formed a system for you that works extremely well in the whole relationship building area. And you've demonstrated that so beautifully during our conversation today. And I just want to thank you for joining me on my podcast and sharing your wisdom, experience, and insights with my audience. My pleasure, Meredith. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com to learn how our tools can increase your impact with clients and expand your business. And while you're there, grab our free ebook, The Five Secrets to Getting Better at Anything. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell. Make it a great day.